We begin with prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of another Lord's Day. This, this glimpse of, of heavenly sweetness when we are free to serve you un, unburdened by the, the cares of the week. And we pray that you would bless our efforts to approach you by faith this day. We thank you for your word and for your people and especially for the Stevenses. And we thank you for Sunday school and we pray that you would bless our study of, of Jeremiah this morning. We pray that it would make an, a difference in our hearts, a, an eternal difference. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, you know what's coming. I'm, I'm, I'm a college professor, so there's always a quiz. My music history students have a quiz every single class period. They hate it, but they love it because they learn. So who can name for me the last five kings of Judah in order who hasn't done it for me yet? Someone who hasn't done it yet. The last five kings of Judah in order. Oh, now... All of a sudden, I had eye contact, I had eye contact, and now there's no eye contact. Oh, come on. No? All right, well, you can at least, oh, Katie will do it. Okay, is it Josiah, uh, Jehoahaz, Jehoahjin, Jehoakim, and uh, Zedekiah? Almost. Almost. You had three and four switched around. Right, so what's the mnemonic device? Let's all say it together. Has Kim a chin? So when you're trying to remember this, you, you think of a political cartoon of, uh, what's his name? Kim Jong-un, right? So this, this caricature of his, of his physiognomy. And then you can remember, has Kim a chin? It's easy to remember Josiah from all those wonderful Bible storybooks you had when you were a boy or a girl. And then you've got Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin. Has, Kim, a chin. And then you can remember Zedekiah. How? Last letter of the alphabet, last king uh, of Judah. And why is that important when you're reading the book of Jeremiah? It's important because... The book of Jeremiah gives us more of his biography than we get from any of the other writing prophets. Clearly, we are meant, as we read the book of Jeremiah, to keep track of his life story. And that's hard to do because it's not always in chronological order. But even though it's not always in chronological order, chapters, um, chapters 21 through about 44 is constantly, those chapters are constantly telling you, well, in the reign of king so-and-so, in the reign of king so-and-so, and that's how you can keep track of the order of events in his life. Now, someone other than Katie, what are the lengths of those five reigns? You can do this. Josiah reigned for 31 years. How long did Jehoahaz reign, Chris? Three months. Three months. And then how long did Jehoiachin, uh, sorry, Jehoiakim reign? 11 years. 11 years. And then how long did Jehoiachin reign? Three months. 
Three months. And how long did Zedekiah reign? See, you can do it. Three months, 11 years. Three months, 11 years. And where I really geek out is when I ask you to remember a date, but I really think it would be helpful as you're reading uh, the notes in a study Bible to have a year or two or three in your head because the Reformation Study Bible, the, the ESV Study Bible, whatever study Bible you use is going to use dates. So who remembers the year that Jerusalem fell and the temple was burned? Who remembers? Throw out a number. Chris. 586. 586. Or 587. Take your pick. You get full credit for both. Scholars disagree. When was Jeremiah called to be a prophet? Chapter 1 says, in the 13th year of King Josiah. What does that mean? I don't know what the 13th year of King Josiah was. Anyone know the year? What year was that? 627. That's right. You can learn those two numbers. How far apart are they? 40 years. 40 years. You ever encounter that number in biblical history before? All right. So those of you who have mastered those two numbers, here's a third one. When did Josiah die? King Josiah, the good king, died when he went into battle and, uh, at the Battle of Megiddo. And that's when the good times ended for the believers in 609 B.C. Notice how the years go backwards, B.C. All right. So that's enough for quizzing. Last night at the picnic, Jim Cosson said to me, looking forward to chapter 5 tomorrow. And my heart sank. My heart sank because I was planning to talk about chapter 18. But my heart longed to talk about chapter 5. Do you know what's in chapter 5? Oh, chapter 5 is great. Chapter Chapter 5 begins with God telling the prophet, Run! Run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. Look and take notes. Search her squares to see if you can find a man. Just one. A man, one who seeks justice and seeks truth, that I may pardon her. And you know how many Jeremiah found? He didn't find any. And and so he said, well, that's because I've gone to the wrong side of the tracks. These are the poor people. These are the common people. They, 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 they have, they're illiterate. They, they haven't read the Bible. They don't know. I'll go, to the, I'll go to the rich people. And do you know how many found, he found in the high rent district of Jerusalem? He said, well, I'll go to the children, the kids. They haven't been tainted yet. Do you know how many righteous boys and girls he found in Jerusalem? It's a sobering chapter. As someone later said, um, 
Jesus. Not one righteous, no, not one. Ending with the verse that I quoted, I think, three times last week. End of chapter 5. The prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule at their direction. My people love to have it so. But what will you do when the end comes? Oh, chapter 5 is great. When I told Betsy, I I was thinking of teaching Jeremiah the summary, she said, great, I can't wait till we get to chapter 6. Chapter 6 is my favorite, she said. She loves verse 16, and I think you will too. Chapter 6, verse 16, thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look, and ask for the ancient paths, where the good way is, and walk in it and find rest for your souls. Oh, I wish, wish we were going to do chapters. And then there's chapter 7, right? The Shiloh sermon that, that leads to all sorts of interesting um, uh, repercussions in chapter 26. And, and then there's, there's chapter 8. Oh my, chapter 8 is fantastic. What, uh, uh, you, you all know the, the, um, the verse... Um, From prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, do you know this verse? What are they saying? Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Every chapter in this book is a jewel. I mean that. I mean that with all my heart. Every chapter in the book of Jeremiah is a literary and more importantly spiritual gem, a morsel to savor, a precept to apply. But if we continued chapter by chapter consecutively through this book the way we have been doing, one to two chapters a week, do you know how far we'd get by the end of the summer? We'd get about a third of the way through, which is why I'm calling the summer's class a survey. My goal is not for us to read the whole thing together. I hope you read the whole thing many times in your life. My goal, by the time we get to the last Sunday of August, is for you and and me and all of us to have discussed all the most important topics in the book of Jeremiah. And for us to have talked about tips for making our reading more fruitful. <laughs> um, does anybody still need the... Yes. This is the... It's the same handout every single week of the summer, so it doesn't change. You're welcome, Sir Clyde. St. Clyde. What, I got one more. Okay. I'll get, I'll get Dottie to copy some more for next week. So today we're talking about chapter 18. Let's turn to chapter 18. You were worried I was going to talk about chapter 9, and chapter 10, and chapter 11, and chapter... I was sorely tempted. 
Chapters 18, 19, and 20 have always been read as a unit. Readers have seen these three chapters as going together. And we're going to talk about chapter 18 today, chapter 19 next week, and chapter 20 um, in two weeks. And you'll see why they, why they seem to go together. They were almost, they're not dated. Uh, very few of the chapters in the early part of this book are dated. A few of them are. But we're pretty confident that it was written after 609. Because what happens to Jeremiah in chapter 20 seems highly unlikely to have happened during the reign of King Josiah. King Josiah and his administration would not tolerate the kind of persecution that happens in chapter 20. So we know it's after 609, and scholars are pretty confident that it comes before 605, because there's some consensus that chapters 1 through 20 are that scroll that got written down in that year, 605, and then burned by the despot Jehoiakim in chapter 36. More about that on July 23rd. So what we're reading today most likely happened and got written between 609 and 605, if you're looking at your timeline. So that's early in the reign of the tyrant Jehoiakim. Let me read verses 1 through 12 of chapter 18. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to do. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, you were here three weeks ago, that's language from chapter one. Remember that? That little poem in chapter one? Here it is again. Verse eight. And if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, chapter one. And if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I, have in, that I had intended to do to it. Now, therefore, say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord, behold, I am shaping disaster against you and devising a plan against you. Return, 
everyone from his evil way and amend your ways and your deeds. But they say, that's in vain. We will follow our own plans and will everyone act according to the stubbornness of his evil heart. Jeremiah loved object lessons. God gave Jeremiah an ability to use ordinary, common, physical things, things you could see, things you could touch, to help his listeners understand eternal things, principal things, abstract things. Recall the almond branch from three weeks ago. Remember the almond branch in chapter 1? Jeremiah the prophet is being called to the ministry and God says, look. And Jeremiah looks and he sees an almond branch blooming. Why? Well, in Palestine, remember, the almond tree is the first to bloom. It's the first sign of spring. And the Hebrew word for almond is very closely related. Indeed, linguists would say it's based on the verb to watch, right? You watch for the first signs of spring. And God is watching to fulfill his word. And then God said, look. And Jeremiah looked. Remember this in chapter 1? And what did he see? Do you remember? A boiling pot tipping from the north. And the... And the And the engaged Bible reader sees these things in his mind's eye and it helps him, it helps her to understand what he's really talking about. Object lessons work because the Creator made all things to reveal something. Namely, his, God's own wisdom, power, and goodness. And therefore, all created things interrelate because they all point to different facets of the same thing, God's glory. Every cloud, everything that happens in history, every atom, every galaxy points to God's glory. It's what we call general revelation, So physical realities reflect higher realities. Psalm 1, for example, teaches us that the blessed man, the man who delights in the law of the Lord, is like what? Say it. He's like a? He's like a tree. So the more you know about trees, (laughs) the more you're going to get out of Psalm 1. What object did our Lord Jesus use to teach us not to be anxious? Do you remember? Lilies, sparrows, ravens. I believe that on the third day of creation, when God made trees and lilies, I think he had Psalm 1 and Matthew 6 in mind. 
He was creating things that would help you and me understand what it means to be a blessed man. He was creating things that would help you and me to understand why we shouldn't be anxious. Jonathan Edwards, have you heard that name? He was a 18th century New England pastor and theologian. Some would say the the greatest thinker America ever produced. He was so fascinated by this correspondence between the visible and the invisible that he kept a notebook his whole life long in which he made entries. In the end, by the time he died, there were 212 miniature studies of what he called images of divine things. Here's an example. Image number three, the rose. This is Jonathan Edwards, not Jeremiah. Roses grow upon briars, which is to signify that all temporal sweets are mixed with bitter. But what seems more especially to be meant by it is that pure happiness, the crown of glory, is to be come at in no other way than by bearing Christ's cross, by a life of mortification, self-denial, and labor, and bearing all things for Christ. The rose, that is chief of all flowers, is the last thing that comes out. The briary, prickly bush grows before that. The end and crown of all is the beautiful and fragrant rose. Or how about this? Image number 35, the silkworm. The silkworm is a remarkable type of Christ, which when it dies, yields us that of which we make such glorious clothing. Christ became a worm for our sakes, and by his death, kindled that righteousness with which believers are clothed and thereby procured that we should be clothed with robes of glory. So you see, the power of an object lesson comes from its accessibility. We've all been pricked by a rose. But we've all been entranced by its exquisite beauty and fragrance. We've all handled fine silk and we've all squashed a caterpillar. We know these things. Physically, tactily. And by analogy, the concrete helps us to conceptualize the abstract. But if that immediacy, if that immediacy that I can touch and taste and and smell, if that immediacy is the strength of object lessons, their non-verbal nature, the fact that they don't use words, that's their weakness. Images may be more immediate than words, but they're also less precise than words. In a courtroom, for example, a judge is compelled by the wording of the law to a certain interpretation. Scott's over there saying, I wish. Compelled by the wording to reach a certain conclusion. 
But there is nothing in the attributes of a rose bush that compels us to come to the same conclusions that Jonathan Edwards did. Which is why when you read an object lesson in the Bible, there's almost always a verbal explanation for it. An inspired, infallible interpretation of the object lesson. And that's the case here. Heed it. That's my practical tip for today. When you read an object lesson in the book of Jeremiah, heed the verbal explanation of it. Or you may end up somewhere you don't want to be. So I found a sermon by a guy named Gary Rice. I have no idea who Gary Rice is. I don't even know what church he pastored, what his theological tradition was. But listen to what he said about Jeremiah 18. Tell me what you think of this. God does not throw anybody away. Just as the master potter turns spoiled clay into another good vessel, so too God works blessing in everyone's life despite their sin. Oh, that's so stirring. That's, that's, a, that's a beautiful interpretation of that object lesson, don't you think? Is that what God is saying? Well, I mean, there's an element of truth to what Pastor Rice is saying. We are works in progress. God does bless his people by grace despite their sin. But that's not the truth that God is communicating in this lesson. And that makes it a false interpretation. Here's another one. I've never heard of Gary Rice, but I have heard of Eugene Peterson. Have you? He's the guy who wrote the message. He was a Presbyterian pastor, not PCA. This is what he said about Jeremiah 18. God has chosen to take risks like a potter. Just as a potter relishes the adventure of working irregular clay into whatever it turns out to be, so too... God relishes the relationship he has with stubborn, autonomous humanity. Oh, that's a beautiful interpretation of the the object lesson. Don't you think? Isn't that beautiful that God wants to be in relationship with us? The infamous open theist theologian John Sanders writes this along the same lines. Quote, The potter wants a vessel that redounds to his glory, but this particular clay has rejected the divine project. What do you think of that? Is that what this says? No, that does violence to the image. Can clay reject anything? It's clay, right? It's clay. Oh. Oh, good. So it's hard not to go to First Corinthians, uh, starting in verse eighteen, which talks about the foolishness of man and the wisdom of God, and how God makes man's wisdom foolish, um, and and only opens the eyes of those who He chooses. Mm-hmm. 
Thank you, Mark. I'm reminded, my dear wife, she's wonderful, she sent me a text right before class. She said, remember to be calm during Sunday school. <laughs> Look what the text says. Verse 6. O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done? That's the interpretation of the object. God is sovereign. He can do whatever He wants with you. He's the potter. You're the clay. Just as a master potter can do whatever he wants with his clay. The clay can say, no. A master is not daunted by the peculiar properties of the clay he's working with. After all, he's the one who prepared the clay. If in the middle of his work he decides the clay is better suited to a different kind of vessel, he knows just how to turn it into that. Don't tell God that something is impossible. Nothing is impossible for God until he says it's impossible. It's never too late to repent until the time comes when God says it's too late. Many a hardened sinner hears the gospel and says, it's too late for me. And Jeremiah chapter 18 says, no, it's not. God is the potter. He's absolutely free. He can do what He wants with you. And He can bring you to faith and repentance. But there's a flip side to that. Okay? That's what we read starting in verse 8. No, and starting in verse 9. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do to it. If you're, if you're an outwardly religious person, if you grew up in a Christian family, maybe, you're, maybe you, your teacher or your dad had you memorize Psalm 23 when you were six years old, and if you wander from that, don't take any comfort from Psalm 23. He's the potter. And his sovereignty, rather than being a reason for a kind of resigned fatalism, oh, what will be, will be, God's sovereign. How they say that in French? Que sera, sera. Is that French or is that Spanish? Spanish. Spanish. No, God is sovereign. He can do with the clay whatever he wants. He can give you eternal life. And he can damn you if you reject him. 
despite your religious background. Can I not do with you as this potter has done? Of course he can. But the people will have none of it. Verse 12, this is precisely what Jeremiah's hearers deny. But they say, that's in vain. Or as the NIV puts it, it's no use. Yes, it is. He's the potter. Have you never seen a potter at his wheel? Teilen aufgetragen werden, vollenden die so entstandenen Tonkreationen. We're not listening to the German. Just look. picture of potter and clay is doubly appropriate as a description of God's relationship to us because we are made of clay, literally. Turn to Genesis 2. Keep your hand, right hand in Jeremiah 18. We'll go back. 
Would someone read Genesis 2, 17? Genesis 2, 17. But of the but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Oh, do I have the wrong verse? Probably the wrong verse. Uh, 2, 7. 2, 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and he, the man became a living creature. There you go. And that, ver- that word formed... The Hebrew word translated formed is the word from which the Hebrew word potter that Jeremiah uses in chapter 18 comes from. So you have this picture in Genesis 2 of God getting his hands dirty in the dirt. Would someone read um, in the next chapter, Genesis chapter 3, verse 19. 319. Ben. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. In the appendices of our directory of worship, there is a graveside service that begins like this. For as much as it has pleased Almighty God in his wise providence to take out of this world the soul of our deceased brother, we therefore commit his body to the ground, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust awaiting the hour when all who are in the graves will hear the voice of the Son of God and come forth. But it's also an appropriate image, indeed an unforgettable, vivid, powerful image, because of how responsive, how malleable wet clay is in the potter's hands. The slightest move you saw it, you saw it, the slightest movement of his fingers, of his thumb, of that sponge produced really beautiful results. The potter can do whatever he wants. The master potter can do whatever he wants with his clay. But as we take our interpretation from the words of chapter 18, we must not lose sight that ultimately it's a lesson about judgment. The object lesson focuses on the moment when the potter goes from making one kind of vessel to making another kind of vessel. God is absolutely free to do what he wants within the limits of his own self-consistency, within the limits of his own character. And as I was saying earlier, what this means is that, um, as Derek Kidner put it, in, in the mouth of, of the true God, the God of the Bible, 
Every threat is a call to repentance. But every promise is a call to persevere. A call to persevere not because true Christians are at risk of losing their salvation. No. But it's a call to repentance because there really is such a thing as a hypocrite. Someone who is outwardly pious but far from God and therefore cannot rest in God's, should not rest in God's promises. But it's also, it's also a call, and I think this is really important, it's also every promise is a call to persevere because as we contemplate God's sovereignty, it gives you and me great encouragement and confidence and hope. God can do it. God can save to the uttermost. Nothing is impossible with him. So let's look at an example of both of these possibilities. First, God promises judgment, but then relents when somebody repents. Please turn to Jonah chapter 3. Jonah. Jonah's between Obadiah and Micah. Jonah 3. Would someone read verses 4 and 10? Who would read verses 4 and 10 for me? Chase. Jonah 3, verse 4. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And then verse 10? Verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Thank you. Is that because God is fickle? Is that because God responds to the Clay's decision? Do Clay's make, does Clay make a decision? No, it's because that initial promise was for a certain category of people. God was promising to destroy unrepentant Nineveh. He wasn't saying anything about a repentant Nineveh. And conversely, promises of salvation are given also to a certain category of people. Let's turn to 1 Samuel chapter 2. So this is the story of Eli, the priest who, who refused to discipline his sons. And this is what God says about that. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 30. Would someone read 1 Samuel 2, verse 30 for me? Clyde will. Thank you, Clyde. 
Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now, the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. God said one thing, but Eli despised it. And so God said another thing, not because God had changed, but because God was, was the same. He's always the same. Really what Jeremiah 18 is telling us, I think, is that we are not to despair in our sin. We are not to be like the people in verse 12 who say, it's no use. That is in vain. It's too late. I've spoiled everything. If God has patiently kept you in this world till now, then it is not too late to turn from sin to Christ. He is the potter. He can do it. The potter knows just how to turn the clay into a salvaged vessel of great beauty. To paraphrase Paul in Romans 9. But God is also telling you not to presume on His promises. Do you know what? Do you know what the difference between Resting in God's promises, which is a good thing to do, and presuming on them? If God has promised something to believers, you can take no comfort in it unless you yourself are a believer. The potter can turn the clay into a vessel of wrath prepared for destruction. Romans 9. So then, here are two more tips for getting the most from your personal reading of Jeremiah. When you come to one of his many object lessons, tip number one, first, see it. God gave you an imagination. Don't let YouTube spoil it for you. Use your mind's eye. See it. See the almond branch. See the boiling pot. Husbands, if you haven't cooked for a while, go make spaghetti tonight. See the boiling pot. See the clay in the potter's hands. That's what God intends for you to do. He's giving us a picture for a reason. But here's my second tip. Don't rely solely on your imagination in interpreting it. Use your imagination to see it, but then use the words of Scripture given to you to interpret it. The inspired words, the infallible words. Verse 5, Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, Can I not do with you as this potter has done?
Philip, would you accompany him? Thank you. Let's take our hymnals and turn to 688. 688. And stand. And let's sing together 688. Lord, you alone are God, the sovereign king, holding sway over all things, including us and our stubborn, obstinate, wayward, erratic hearts. Lord, we pray that as we see ever more clearly the truth of your sovereign rule in our lives, we pray that it would have its proper effect and give us the, the courage to resist temptation, the faith to run to Christ when we fall, and the, the wisdom to give you the credit when we stand. Lord, we thank you for Jeremiah. We pray that you would bless our efforts to apply this lesson to our lives. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.